Hi, friends. Welcome to the Rock Your Joy podcast. I'm your host, Anya Rock, a woman, artist, entrepreneur, mom, and high-performance coach. I'm working on becoming the best version of myself and inspiring others to do the same. This is my invitation to you to be part of the collective shifting of consciousness. Let's choose love. Let's choose joy. And let's rock your joy one day at a time. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Rock Your Joy podcast. The election cycle is behind us, and many of us are taking a deep breath and recalibrating. But it doesn't take long before you realize how much work there is to do. We are still very much living through a global pandemic, and it's affecting communities in vastly different ways. So if you've ever found yourself wondering, where do I start? Listen in. My guest today is Shelly Tajilsik, a mindfulness teacher and community organizer from South Florida. Shelly is the founder of Pandemic of Love, which was intended to help her local community. But like a pandemic, the acts of love and kindness have spread quickly, and now it's a beautiful movement helping those in need throughout the world. Shelly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Shelly, tell me a little bit about you and what you do and Pandemic of Love. It's a big question, but... <laughs> Where to begin? Um, a little about me. I'm a self-care activist uh, that works with social justice organizations and with nonprofits. I am a community organizer, and I'm really good at bringing people together for a common cause. And I'm a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher who primarily works in the spaces that have to do with the aftermath of gun violence in this country. And I have been for the last several years working with communities affected by mass shootings in this country, which is unfortunately too many communities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's a lot right there. (laughs) Yeah. So can you go a little deeper into what a self-love activist means? So self-care activist is someone who understands that self-care is an act of preservation, that it is not an act of self-indulgence, and that it is, in these times that we're living in, an act of resistance. And that it's really important as activists and as volunteers and individuals who are trying to collectively work for a better future, that we also take time to tend to and cultivate our resilience. So really self-care is just in the simplest terms, a way for us to make sure that we show up as whole as possible and as effective as possible when doing the work that it takes to create that better future. Beautiful. Really true. And so much right now I see that, you know, everyone dealing with such a high level of anxiety and stress and then kind of feeling bad, right? We're told to feel bad about taking time in the things that, as you said, are, you know, maybe considered indulgent, but are so necessary. Like mindfulness. Yeah. What was your mindfulness journey? 
Well, so my mindfulness journey actually started before mindfulness was really even a term um, or trending for that matter. Um, I actually started meditating over two decades ago when I was a graduate student in New York City. And I happened to take a class with Dr. Robert Thurman, who is Emma, Uma Thurman's dad, but way more than that. Actually. <laughs> He's a, he is a, a professor, a tenured professor, was, I think he's retired now at Columbia University and teaches all about Buddhism and Far Eastern religion and Nepalese and Tibetan culture. So I was fascinated with, you know, what was happening in the Far East, uh, what was happening with Tibet. And I wound up auditing his class and learning about Tibet House in New York City and stumbled upon a Wednesday night class that I would go to regularly uh, with none other than who, who is now my core teacher, Sharon Salzberg. And I learned about Shambhala Buddhism. I learned about uh, the practice of Metta Bhavna, which is loving kindness. And that forever changed my life and became a core practice of mine. Uh, meditation was a very personal journey for me up until probably the early 2000s when I became uh, an executive in a public company. And we were at a, going through a time of rebranding. I had a huge budget, a really big team, a big responsibility. And people were like dropping off like flies left and right. You know, everybody was like stressed out of their mind. And I was always the one kind of like happy-go-lucky and chipper. And somebody in my department actually said to me like, what, what are you on? Like, what are you drinking? You know, <laughs> what, <laughs> what medicine are you taking? Why, why are you so calm when every one of us is just completely stressed out? And I, was, I said, well, I meditate, you know, every day, sometimes twice a day. And she asked if I could teach her how to meditate. And I said, you know, why don't we all just as a department Whoever wants to come, just we can meditate during lunchtime, like once a week. So I started to teach guided meditation, you know, a secular. And in looking and in seeking out different practices that I could share, you know, in a public company that would be approved by the CEO who I reported to, I uh, found John Cabot Zinn and found uh, MBSR and continued on the journey to becoming a certified teacher, uh, again, for my own edification and just for kind of helping others in my inner circle uh, and close circles of influence to just be less stressed and more productive because that was the mindset that I was in. I was in corporate America and I was in that kind of wheel for, for two decades before leaving in twenty. 16 in the summer of 2016. So you mentioned MBSR. Tell us more about that. Sure. So um, mindfulness-based stress reduction is a, a, a type of mindfulness that is probably the most studied and has the most um, just scientific backing, if you will, which makes it easier to teach in 
public schools and in, you know, government agencies, uh, the army, the U.S. Army uses it now. And I found that in the corporate world as well, it was just way easier for me to be able to have conversations with, you know, my team and also with anybody that I needed to get permission to teach mindfulness in, in a corporate setting if I actually had like scientific backing and proof that medically speaking, something that is effective and it's not woo woo or, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. The scientific backing of, of what we've, you know, what people have known for millennia. <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's a stigma that's just, you know, always been attached to, to meditation. And to be honest with you, up until I took that course, you know, in my early twenties, I had the same stigma. I thought that you had to look a certain way, be a certain religion, you know, sit a certain way, chant. Uh, when I thought about meditation and like who meditates and why meditate. So the fact that we were kind of able to westernize, if you will, this practice and just bring it to more people, I think can only help. I know that a lot of it's being diluted now, of course, and there's this whole like, mindfulness controversy and this debate about depth versus breadth. But I actually think that it's really, you know, important for us to plant as many seeds as possible with as many people as possible, because all the changes that we're seeking to make in the world stem from the heart. You know, the types of changes that we want to see in this world all, all are rooted in the heart center. And so if we can't teach people how to get into that heart center, nothing is ever going to change. No amount of technology, no amount of, you know, innovation is going to get us there. Mm -hmm. So you left in 2016 and you've been teaching mindfulness um, and meditation. And then tell me about Pandemic of Love and how that was born out of this, this crazy time we're living in? Well, so I left in 2016 pre-election and my thought was that, well, I, you know, I left as a president of a mid-sized firm with 2,400 employees. So I kind of went out on top, so to speak. And, um, I was turning 40. I realized that, um, it was time for a second act and to, you know, start to follow my passions. And um, I realized that people in the corporate world, just born from my own experience, really could benefit from, uh, from mindfulness. And I thought when I left that I would pursue a career or build a company, if you will, teaching mindfulness in the corporate world. And two things happened. The first thing was, is that I landed a few clients and went to different corporate settings to teach and put together mindfulness programs or develop wellness programming. And I realized that it's not where I wanted to be at all. You know, I was like, this is more of the same. Um, I don't want to help people be more productive so they can make more money for like a company. Like I, I feel like I'm, essentially, you know, 
just doing it for the wrong reasons. And so I was, that was kind of like, you know, I was mulling over that. And then the election happened. Mm. And you're in New York at this time still. I was not in New York. I was in South Florida and I was devastated. Like many people were by the results of the election. And I just felt an incredible amount of grief and despair. And I wanted to, I wanted to channel that energy in a positive way. And so as meditation teachers, you know, we, we know that the purpose of meditating is so that we can have the opportunity to sort of to choose what the response is going to be versus just having this innate default mode reaction. And evolutionarily speaking, as human beings, we have a fight, flight, or freeze reaction. And after the election, feeling that great amount of despair and grief, I knew that I wanted to channel that in a very different way and decided to try to create almost like a new default mode, leaning into my, uh, my meta bhavna, my, my loving kindness practice of uh, empathy and action. And so I looked for ways to try to be resourceful and helpful. And um, again, in an act of self-preservation, really, I became really involved with the Women's March I became very involved with a number of different organizations and I really, you know, created a a genuinely deep connection with a lot of women that felt exactly the same way. And we started this journey together. And I realized that as I was watching others around me, you know, almost like in a slow-mo setting, well, like you're in a movie and it's like a Saving Private Ryan type movie where like pe- there's gunshots flying everywhere. And you're like, oh, you know, like freaking out because you're watching people fall left and right. And really, that's what I was witnessing for the first six months after the election. You know, people were just like in a freak out zone and were really charged up, you know, flying to Washington for marches and calling their senators and doing all these really relevant and important things. But what would happen is that they would all burn out and experience activism fatigue because most of them did not have resilience or like a surge capacity of any kind, you know, so their surge capacity was depleted very quickly. And I recognize that as a mindfulness teacher that I could help in this space with these individuals for a cause I really, really cared about to help generate and, and help people cultivate resilience so that they could be in it for the long haul because this was a marathon. It was very clear early on and not a sprint. And so, you know, that's kind of how I became really involved. And one of the tenets or principles of self-care, and there are lots, but one is cultivating a community of care, cultivating a community of care that that can help you both be accountable to your own promises to yourself, but also can help you remove obstacles and help to fill the gaps where where you have 
any gaps, right? Whether they're financial, whether they're childcare, transportation, et cetera. And the best way to most effectively be able to connect people who have a need with anybody in their community care that can fill that need is through a, a formalized mutual aid, you know, organization. And so mutual aid was something that um, I would often talk about and, and, and uh, introduce to any organization that I would go in and teach about uh, the, the main tenets of self-care and how to create a formalized self-care plan and formalized communities of care in order to build resilience. And I tell you all this because that was really kind of the root, you know, of how Pandemic of Love started. This was something that I had been doing on a micro level around the country for years. And so when the pandemic happened and started to shelter and home in different states, I knew that I had to do something because this is my default mode now, right? Okay, I'm sad, I'm in despair, there's grief, I'm, I'm afraid. So I'm going to lean into that and then I will move into empathy and action and ask, how do I show up? What can I do? And how can I help? What can I do about it? And that's how Pandemic of Love was born because I saw people in my own community in South Florida who were, you know, putting on things on social media like I, I just got furloughed or my restaurant just closed. I have no idea how I'm going to fill my fridge up. You know, if we're going to, cor- at that point, we nobody had any idea how long this was going to last. And so people had, you know, essential needs that needed to be met and were, they were scared, they were distraught, they were really concerned about what the future was going to hold. And so I knew that there were people in our community that could help and step up. And so not being a technologically savvy person, um, I just went on Google Forms. I created two really simple links. One form was called Give Help. One form was called Get Help. I posted a really short video um, on my Instagram and on my Facebook page. And I included the links uh, in my bio. And the hashtag that I used was Pandemic of Love. That was not going to be the name of anything, right? Um, but the, the reason I used that hashtag was because I recognized as well that if we want to, if we will it, that diseases aren't the only thing that can be viral, right? Like love and hope and kindness and a lot of positive things can be viral as well. And I wanted to cultivate that. I wanted people to remember that this is an opportunity in a time of disconnection to actually cultivate connection. And so it was incredible because I, I posted it, you know, in one evening on a weekend, went to bed, woke up the next morning, and there were hundreds of people, not just from my community, but from communities all around the country and, event, and soon within days all around the world who had filled out either the form to give help or to get help. And I recognized that uh, there was something really interesting happening here and uh, that there was something special happening here because people were not only just willing to help, but this was an opportunity to directly connect people on a human level at a time when 
people were feeling very isolated. And, and so, you know, just to kind of fast forward, uh, so this was created back on March 14th, and we are recording this now uh, at the end of October. And we have to date uh, connected uh, over 750,000 people. We have transacted, meaning the individuals directly have transacted a person in need with a, a person who was donating to a person in need uh, over $42 million. Wow. Which is an astounding number. Mm-hmm. But it's also a testament to how incrementally we can make a huge impact by just like throwing a pebble in the water and creating a ripple effect. Because when you mathematically factor out how we got to that number, you'll notice that it's actually just an accumulation or an aggregation of an average donation of $135 to a family. So it's not like people were giving thousands of dollars or paying for people's rent. You know, it, it, it can be that. But the average person that stepped up or showed up for another family did so by purchasing a gift card to a grocery store or paying a utility bill or keeping their, you know, their Wi-Fi or their phone on. And so it just shows how collectively together, when we all kind of show up, that we can create this huge uh, shift and that little small ripples really can become enormous waves. Yeah. I think there's, it's an incredible movement, by the way, I think when I found you on Instagram and I just was like reading and couldn't stop. And then I did sign up here in Chicago to give. And I think people must really resonate with this idea too of like, there's no in between. There's no, there's no, I'm not giving to an organization. Then it's sort of nameless, like this direct to a person impact of knowing that it, it's really, the ripple is, is, is felt and seen more deeply because it's not just, kind of disappearing into somebody, some organization that we hope 70% of it goes out to the community. Right. Yeah. So we're, um, a lot of people have asked us, like, are you guys a nonprofit? Are you planning to become a nonprofit? Because we have had organizations and individuals who have the means to donate, say, I'll write you a check. And I'm like, can't write me a check because I don't have a bank account for Pandemic of Love and I don't plan on ever opening one. We're not a nonprofit. We don't plan on ever being one. We're actually a nonprofit disruptor. And it's not to say that nonprofits are not really important. They are. I sit right. on the several of them. They are. I was going to say, it's not to say they don't do good work, right? That isn't at all. But they can also be incredibly inefficient and they can be impersonal sometimes. So this is just kind of a different way for people to, as you were saying, you know, give directly know where your funds are actually going and know that a hundred percent of what you were giving went to the place that you had want that you wanted it to go. But the most important byproduct, which we kind of keep coming back to really is the human connection because it's not just incredibly powerful for the person in need who, you know, gets to fill their fridge up for their kids it's incredibly powerful for the person who's giving as well, equally powerful. Because 
you get to step into somebody else's shoes and see the world through a different lens, even for a short period of time. And normally people, you know, don't take the time to do that. We kind of all live in our bubbles, you know? And so many of us don't like to, and and it's hard to do in a pandemic too, but kind of step outside of our comfort zones or we don't do it frequently enough to actually create those connections with individuals who are on a different socioeconomic level than we are, or that are, you know, culturally different than we are, or, you know, possibly even in these times, sitting on the opposite side of the aisle politically, to be able to connect people in a very humane and human way, I think is really the seeds or the fodder for true and meaningful change. Yeah. I agree. I think especially now as we feel there's so much division and it's amplified by this feeling of all of us being sort of behind our screens and behind our social media profiles and to be able to really step outside and see our neighbors. And I love that it's, you know, you're doing it in the micro, like when I went online, to if you go to Pandemic of Love, you can go by city. So really, you know, each of us making an impact in our own community and then, you know, filling out the form. And I, I love it. It's just, it was very simple. It was really easy to do. And, and it gives you the option of how much do you want to pay a grocery bill? Can you do it once a week? Can you do it just once? Um, so there's kind of a, a place for everybody in there, yeah. which that inclusion I think is really mindful and important. I think what it is, is a testament to the fact that every single person in this world has something to offer and every single person in this world has something they need. And I don't care who you are. You can be the King of England, you know, or the Queen of England and you still have needs. And you could be somebody who is being helped by this or example to fill your fridge. And that can be sent to somebody else who has kids winter coats, for example. So it's this beautiful symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And it's, it must just continue to grow. It's like it takes a life of its own. Yes, it's taking a life of its own and we keep expanding. And I feel like I just liken it really to the infinite expansion of the universe. You know, it's just expanding forever. So the idea is that, you know, if we can kind of put that love in the universe, that it continue to expand in an infinite way and touch the lives of many, many people, like getting back to the roots of where, where we used to be, right? The, what, what our parents tell us about when they talk about back in the day, like knew our neighbors, but we knew them in a very different way. Like we, we would know if our neighbor was struggling to keep the lights on or if, you know, the neighbor, you know, didn't have enough food or lost their job or got sick. Like, we really don't know that about our neighbors today, you know? It's superficial. And I think that if we can kind of go back to that community uh, safety net, it will make a really big difference. Agreed. You said something on your Instagram the other day that I love and want you to just share a little bit about this idea that we have a moral obligation to continue to seek joy from the space of mindfulness. And I think that 
similar to what you said about self-care, and I'm sure that you are deeply connected. Talk a little bit about that because I see in my space, you know, of women, moms, and then just this amplification with the impending election and all of the anxiety that it feels, people kind of feel like, you know, joy is, they feel guilty, I think, for feeling joy. Sure. Of course. There's so much suffering in the world. So how can I take a moment to feel joy, you know? Well, I'll tell you this, you know, I work a lot with refugees, with refugee aid workers. I work a lot, as I said to you, um, in communities affected by mass shootings and by ongoing gun violence. And it's of no use to them if I show up and I'm depressed, scared, and fearful. If I show up to help lift them or have their burden, so to speak, or have their grief, and I'm in the same boat as they are in terms of the way that I'm feeling, then I'm not really being of of use to them. So when we show up for others as a light, as a beacon of hope, something happens, you know, we, we, we like a, like a flame, basically we can light a lot of candles and it doesn't diminish our own light. So there might be that guilt of like, Oh, you know, I, I feel bad celebrating something right now because how can I celebrate amidst other people's pain? And I'm not saying that it has to be something that's like, you know, done in a malicious way or in your face way where you're like, you know, people are suffering in your community due to like a tragedy and you're like posting, you know, a celebration that you're having. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there's joy to be found really, you know, everywhere in this world, every in every single day, right? Uh, little tiny joys that are the ones that we oftentimes don't tend to pay attention to as much as we should. So you know, one of the things that I, that I talked about in that post was a really great um, lesson that Zen master Thichnot Han, you know, explained about like why it's so important to have this obligation and why we're morally responsible for the way we show up in the world. And he, you know, told a story about how when there are crowded refugee boats that are leaving anywhere, right? Like whether it's Syria or whether it was, you know, Cuba or Haiti or wherever people were fleeing from. When those boats were, you know, in a storm or, or were met by pirates or, you know, whatever other kind of tragedy or frightful thing they met upon on the way, if everybody on the boat would panic, the boat would eventually sink. You know, it'd be like this complete uh, just infection of like panic. And then the boat would perish and everybody on the boat would perish as well. But when only one person on that boat actually remained centered and remained calm, then it was enough to show the way for everybody to survive. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we always have to be the calm person on the boat. That's the whole point. And I go back to the theme of communities of care. 
we all are human. We're all suffering from the same affliction called being human, right? And so, yes, we have emotions. We experience them. We can't deny, we shouldn't deny what we're feeling. But if we can take turns sort of rolling the boulder from one person's shoulder to the other, or if we can all collectively, you know, lift the boulder at the same time, and we just say, okay, you know, I'm going to remain calm on Tuesday and then freak out on Wednesday and you remain calm on, you know, the, the next day, et cetera. It just makes for a society that is way more functional and way more hopeful and actually has an opportunity to not only survive, because that's not what we're talking about here, but can actually thrive. Right. Yeah. And I think about it in the microcosm even for me and my family, like if I have my self-care routines, my meditation, if I am that person on the boat, my kids come home, they have anxiety, right? Their whole world is upside down. I'm able to keep that steadiness, right? Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, and I love that reminder that the community is so important to, to not get it mixed up with being the strong one, but that I'm always, you know, as my listeners know, I'm always like begging them to start a practice, just start with a few breaths, just, you know, start anywhere with this practice of recognizing that default that you're talking about and knowing how to bring yourself back and, and find some distance from those default emotions of panic and anxiety. And yeah. Um, so I love that. And, and so how are you cultivating joy these days? What's bringing you joy? I mean, it's, it's really, it brings me a lot of joy to be able to help individuals who are suffering in a, in a tangible way by connecting with them personally, many of them, by hearing their stories of how our organization and our volunteers and our donors have helped. Um, I always find joy in music. You know, basically I have like a soundtrack to mm. my life, <laughs> as we all do, but, but there's really never a time when there isn't like music playing in the background or when I'm not being a, a guitar or singing a song, uh, which annoys my husband endlessly because he'll say a word, which reminds me of a song and then I'll just start singing <laughs> conversation, but it brings me joy. So, mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think, and then I'm in North Carolina right now. So, uh, nature, you know, just getting out to nature and really looking at how really are, you know, when you climb, looking out at uh, the beautiful foliage of fall leaves and all the colors and you recognize uh, just how the universe is. And um, I think it really kind of puts a lot of things in perspective for you. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, thank you for being here today and sharing your story. And we're going to put all of the links for Pandemic of Love and um, everything in the show notes. And I want to encourage everyone to use it as you need to and participate in it because it's a really, it did, I just love it. I just really was moved by it and by participating in it. So it's a really, um, I think it's a beautiful ripple. Thank you. And thanks for taking the time to be here and share your story. Enjoy South Carolina or North Carolina. Yeah, thank you. 
I appreciate you. Thanks for your generosity and for contributing to that ripple. So I appreciate you greatly. If you love this podcast, and I so hope you did, please subscribe. That way you'll get real-time updates anytime I post a new episode. Feeling inspired and want to share the joy? Leave a review so others can find the podcast more easily. Want to hang out more with me? You can find me on the interwebs at www.anyarock.com. That's A-I-N-E-R-O-C-K. And I'm also on Instagram at Anya underscore rock your joy. Till next time, rock your joy. This episode was produced by Dante32.